when, when I was about five or six years old, about twice a week, I would go to bed, my eyes would open, I would be compelled out of my bed, I couldn't control this, I was compelled out of my bed, it would be completely dark, there would be no sound, I would walk to the door of my bedroom, and outside of my bedroom, and in the middle of the hallway, there would be a glowing, neon green, three-scoop ice cream cone with four arms coming out of the ice cream. It would grab pieces of itself and throw them at me. I would be frozen, unable to move as my head and upper body was pelted with icy projectiles. I woke up in terror, absolute terror, calling for my mommy and daddy. Save me. I was afraid of ice cream for a very long time. I still, I still don't like it. I don't like things, generally things with creamy texture. I'm just not a, I'm not a fan. This morning I want to talk about, I want to talk about fear. The Lord has a word for us about fear. I'm not afraid of ice cream anymore. I just don't like it, but I'm not afraid of it. But as life has gone on, other circumstances have presented themselves that make me and I know you susceptible to other types of fear. More real forms of fear. Fear of being alone. Fear of the unknown. Economic anxiety. And yet a common command and comfort that we find in the scriptures is the Lord saying, do not fear. But what does he mean? What might it look like for the Christian to live a fearless life? What does that even, what does that even mean? Well, that's our journey this morning through Isaiah 41. Isaiah 41 comes to a people who have been under imperial rule, specifically the rule of Babylon. So if there's a, if there's a biblical big bad, it's Babylon. A violent, oppressive empire that shows up in Genesis, they show up in Revelation, and they show up in between. And, and living under imperial rule, especially direct imperial rule, is a recipe for fear and for terror. You never know when the authorities might find out that you're doing something wrong, and then you and your families are in bodily danger. We're, 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 starting, to, we're starting to lose the generation that remembers what it was like to live under Jim Crow. But one of the ways that some folks would characterize that century is that it was, for black folks, uh, an ever-shifting fear. Adolph Reed Jr., one of, my, one of my favorite scholars on race, has a book called The South, Jim Crow and His Afterlives. And he, and he reflects on his experiences, and one of the things that he notes is that every area, every area of the South was different in its enforcement of Jim Crow. After all, racialized segregation is a national policy, but it's also a local policy. And so every time his family moved, there were new rules that he had to learn. Why did he have to learn those rules? Because breaking those rules, or being perceived as breaking those rules, could lead to you being tortured and killed. As the example of Emmett Till reminds us. That's the kind of fear that accompanies imperial occupation. And that's the kind of reality that the people of Israel were dealing with in this chapter. That, that fear wielded by Babylon was how they were kept in line. But this makes the Lord's words to his people all the more important. In verses 1 to 4, the Lord summons the nations into a courtroom where he declares in verse 2, Who has stirred up one from the east? 
calling him in righteousness to his service. He hands nations over to him and subdues kings before him. What the Lord here is, is talking about, he's saying that there's another king that's coming to defeat Babylon and to save Israel from their reign of terror. In verse 25, he'll say something very similar. But what Isaiah is talking about, he's talking about a king who he's actually going to name in a few chapters. It's a king of another empire, the king of the Persian Empire. Another tool in this vast world of foreign policy where the Lord is, that the Lord is saying that he's going to use for his own purposes. And where Israel was used to being afraid, the Lord turns the tables in verses 5 to 7. He says this, The islands have seen it and fear. The ends of the earth tremble. They, they approach and come forward. They help each other and say to their companions, Be strong. The metal worker encourages the goldsmith. And the one who smooths with the hammer spurs on the one who strikes the anvil. One, who's, one says of the welding, It is good. The other nails down the idol so it will not topple. When the, when the Lord works his salvation, his people aren't the ones who need to fear. The enemies of his people are the ones who fear. They'll look to their idols for help, and they'll find that, oh, these are just pieces of wood and stone. Verses 8 to 20, which we read this morning, are beautiful words of comfort. In this text, we're not only told that Israel, the people of God, have been called by him to be his servant, and, and, and that because of that position, the Lord's going to save them, but we're also told that, that they and we are not to be afraid because God is with us. Verse 10. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. This is an incredibly active verse for the Lord and a comforting one for us. In the midst of our fear, we're told that God is going to be present with us, that he's going to strengthen us, that he's going to help us. It's beautiful stuff. But I don't think we believe it. Brothers and sisters, you and I are racked by fear seemingly every day of our lives. In fact, I want you to consider your fears, right? Maybe it's fear that someone close to you will die or be harmed. Maybe it's the fear that your child won't get the schooling that they need to succeed. Maybe it's the fear that you'll lose your job and not be able to feed your family. Maybe it's the fear of being alone. Maybe it's the fear of the unknown as you, as you prepare for a new stage of life or, 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 or as you prepare to move into a different physical location. We're never far from fear. I'm sure that some of your blood pressures are just raising just by me talking about fear so much. And it's probably not helped by me telling you well, God says, does, don't fear. But why? Why doesn't that help? Why doesn't it help for me to just say, well, God says, don't fear? Well, one of the reasons is that deep down, you know, I know, and we're right. There are good reasons to be afraid. We hear, the, we hear God's command, and we think it's unreasonable. There's so much in the world to be afraid of. But here's the thing about this text. This text does not tell us that the world isn't scary. It tells us not to be afraid. Jasmine and I went to, the, went to the zoo a few weeks ago. She's going through this phase where she's scared of everything. Animals especially. But when she hangs out with Dad, it's exposure therapy time. <laughs> and, so, and, so, and so when we got to the lion habitat, there's a, there's a, there's a sign. And, then, and what this sign says is, please be safe. Do not stand, sit, climb, or lean on the fences. If you fall, the lions will eat you, and that will make them sick. <laughs> the health of the lions in that situation is the least of my concerns. 
But the, but, the, but the very phrase, the lions will eat you, should instill a healthy and safety-inducing fear. The Lord in saying, do not fear, is not saying, I'm going to make the world less scary. What he's saying is, I'm going to make you stronger by my presence. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Now, take, a, take a look at verses 11 and 12. They're in the future tense. All who rage against you will surely be ashamed and disgraced. Those who oppose you will be as nothing and perish. Though you search for your enemies, you will not find them. Those who wage war against you will be as nothing at all. These are not promises that you won't have enemies. They're not, this is not a promise that your enemies won't hate you. This is not a promise that your enemies won't attempt to harm you. It's a, it, it's a promise that the Lord is going to ultimately thwart them. One of the ways that we can, I think, misinterpret these commands as well is that we can think that fear itself is an evil thing. Similar to the way that we think about anger. I, 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 find, a lot of, I find a lot of parallels between the way that we treat fear and the way that we treat anger. Anger, anger in itself is not a bad thing. It's just that we almost always sin in our anger. Our anger translates to harshness. It translates to us ignoring, ignoring people's needs and just, and just defending ourselves. We do the same thing with fear. And another one of the things that we do with our fear is we just attempt, if, we, if it doesn't lead to us lashing out, then we just push it down. It's profoundly unhealthy, brothers and sisters. When, when, when you're afraid, say it. It's okay. Because there, there, are, there are two things, two kind of sides of the spectrum uh, when it comes to our fear. And I want you to think about which, which of these fits you. For some of us, our fear overwhelms us with anxiety and pushes us to frantic action. For others of us, our fear paralyzes us into inaction. If your fear keeps you from rest, it requires intervention. I know there are folks who can hear me right now where this is your relationship with fear. Fear drives you to frantic action, so it makes you put up, it makes you put up as many walls as possible to protect yourself and those people and things that you love from any and everything that could possibly cause them harm. And then, inevitably, something slips through the cracks. And you blame yourself and you start the process all over again. And your brain can't rest, and it's constantly reminding you of things that can go wrong and telling you to just, just deal with every possible contingency. I'm getting stressed out just narrating this. The thing about that frantic action, though, is that it's a powerful distraction from love of God and love of neighbor. Because your frantic attempts to protect yourself and those people and things around you take, take, it takes up so much energy because it's not really about them. It's about us. What we're trying to do with our fear in that moment is we're trying to control our lives in order to battle that fear. And we can't. And that's terrifying. What's going on, what's going on here? It's, it's, it's to you who struggle in this way that the Lord says, do not fear for I am with you. But the Lord says it, says it a slightly different way a little bit later. He says, do not be afraid, you worm Jacob. He's not saying that as an insult. He's saying it to remind you that you're very small. We're all very small, but he is very, very big. Some of you may find yourself, those, those of you who find yourselves on this side of the spectrum, 
are running into the arms of the idol of control. And what the Lord is saying to that idol is, this idol is useless. Run to the one who actually does have control. But maybe that's not what your fear does. Maybe your fear pushes you in the other direction. Maybe your fear doesn't drive you to frantic action. Maybe it drives you to paralysis. This is especially a problem today, I think, in this country, in this economy, where we're surrounded by so many choices and options that it's overwhelming. One could spend your entire life stressing about whether or not you made the best decision. Did I choose the right school for my child, if I, if I even had a choice? Did I choose the right job, even if, if I had a choice? Did I choose the right brand of cereal? It, it, it's just every day. This is just as dangerous to our spiritual health, brothers and sisters. Because as frantic action distracts us, Paralysis restrains us. Paralysis keeps us from loving God and our neighbor because we just don't know. We just don't know what to do. I, I, this, is, this, this fear that creeps into our mind can be described as, as, as the numbing terrorism of this two-word phrase, what if? What if this goes wrong? What if, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if this creates a problem that I can't solve? What if, what if, what if, what if? That is the, those are words of fear. And yet the scriptures seem to tell us that fear is generally to be beaten back by love. Why and how? I'm so glad you asked. So, 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 so fear is, is common to all of us and it's often reasonable because it's human. There is not a human being who has ever lived who never experienced fear. And I mean that without exception. Because I include our Savior in that mix. And it's always important to consider Jesus, not only because he worked our salvation, but because everything that he did was for our instruction. The Garden of Gethsemane is one of the most powerful scenes in the entirety of the Gospels. When the Savior and creator of the universe, the eternal Son of God, when he approached the base of the Mount of Olives at the end of his ministry, this garden called Gethsemane with his disciples, he went to pray, but he was not calm when he prayed. He told his disciples in Matthew 26, 38, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch. And then he prays one of the most harrowing prayers in the entirety of the scriptures. My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet, not as I will, but as you will. Let me break that down. Father, I don't want to die. And I especially don't want to die in the way that I'm about to. Let me say it again. Jesus Christ, Son of God, truly divine and truly human, was afraid of death. It's generally a good rule that if Jesus did something, it is not a sin. In fact, dear brother and dear sister, this first part of Jesus' prayer makes a lot of sense because Jesus is about to experience not just a violent and painful death, but a maximally shameful death. He's going to be stripped naked, abandoned by his friends, hung in front of a crowd that's going to be told, both in word and in spectacle, that he is a worthless piece of garbage. Death is going to throw everything that it's got at him. Fear makes sense. When you and I consider many of our fears, they're nothing to be embarrassed by. Name them. 
Look at them. Face them. Yes, they're real. Yes, it's okay to feel them deeply. But as I said a few weeks ago when I was talking about healing, it's not about whether or not we feel fear. It's about what we do with that fear. And to know what we should do, I look again at Jesus. What the second half of that prayer? Yet not as I will, but as you will. Three times he prays this prayer. Three times. Three times he goes before his father. He narrates his fear, his deeply human fear. His fear of an experience that he's never experienced before and which he has no framework for. If you really want your brain to do cartwheels, I want you to just consider the borderline absurdity of the claim that lies at the root of our faith, that the creator of the universe becomes a fully human, a fully human being. That he takes on not the flesh of a king, not the flesh of a billionaire, but hungry, tired, poor, and not just poor in spirit, materially poor, homeless flesh. With all of our experiences, all of our fears, all of our vulnerability, but without sin. And then consider that he did not flee from those things, even though there were times when he reasonably wanted to. Instead, what does he pray? Not as I will, but as you will. Here's our, here's our bonus theology for the week. It's my big, big word of the week. And the best contribution of my, of my favorite early church father, Maximus the Confessor. The word is diothelitism. Somebody say diothelitism. Diothelitism. There we go. I love it. Yes. Diothelitism, it, it requires an amen. What it is, is it's the doctrine of the two wills of Christ. That Christ has both a human will and a divine will, but they're, but they're never in conflict or confusion with one another. In fact, in Christ, what's going on is he is constantly, actively submitting his human will to the divine will. So as God, he, he, he wills with the Father and Spirit, he wills our salvation. But as, he, as, as man, he becomes obedient. He becomes obedient to his Father, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. What we see in this, in this prayer we're given the privilege of seeing an example of what Jesus is doing throughout his entire life. When, 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 when fear of human beings, when fear of death, when fear of the world presents itself to him, he acknowledges it and he turns it to the fear that actually ought to shape our actions, the fear of the Lord. And that fear, according to Proverbs, is not a crippling fear. It's an empowering fear. There's your oxymoron of the day. The fear of the Lord is an empowering fear. What Jesus shows us in his prayer is that fear is real. The world is scary, and Jesus experienced those same fears. He didn't want harm to come to his close friends or to his family. He didn't want unspeakable harm to come to himself, but there was something that was more important to him than himself and his friends. He wanted to save you. And what did he want to save you from? My favorite verse that explains the work of Jesus on the cross and his work of salvation is Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15. The author of Hebrews tells us, Since the children have flesh and blood, Christ too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. We talk about God's salvation in a lot of different ways in Christian circles. This is one way I think we need to talk about it more. Jesus died on the cross to save you from slavery to the fear of death. That doesn't mean that death isn't scary. 
It doesn't even mean that you'll never be afraid of it. But it means that you no longer have good reason to be afraid because it's a defeated enemy. And I don't want you to miss, I don't want you to miss this point because the, 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 the comforts of the scripture only apply if you are united to this Jesus by faith. Because apart from Christ, all of these fears are not only real, but you can't stop them. It doesn't help anybody for me to sugarcoat this. Because to do so would be a failure to love you. Apart from Christ, there is no lasting hope, there is no lasting peace, and there is no lasting power. Why? Because apart from Christ, you are enslaved to a taskmaster who does not want your help. Sin, death, and the devil do not want you to flourish. But Jesus has come to free you from that slavery. Jesus has come to free you from a life that's dictated by the taskmaster that the fear of death is. When Jesus was afraid, he went to the Lord and he said so. And he also said, but Lord, do what you've got to do because I trust you and I know that I'm in your hands. That prayer of faith is the prayer that the Christian is encouraged to pray every time that fear threatens to overtake us. But what does a life with those rhythms look like? Isaiah 41, 15 to 16 are, they, I, as, as I was rereading them over the course of the past few weeks, they, 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 they really, they, they grew up. I'm going to, I'll explain why. This, this is a beautiful picture, not only of the work of the Lord, but the work that the Lord chooses to do through his people. Listen to this. See, I will make you into a threshing sledge. Like a threshing sledgehammer. New and sharp with many teeth. You will thresh the mountains and crush them and reduce the hills to chaff. You will winnow them. The wind will pick them up and the gale will blow them away. But you will rejoice in the Lord and glory in the Holy One of Israel. This is what the Lord desires to do with your lot. Normally when you think of sowing and reaping and threshing, you're thinking about grain, separating the wheat from the chaff. And the Lord takes it, the Lord takes it another level. What he desires of his people, Israel, it's what he wants of all people. He wants to empower you to be a mountain thresher. A mountain thresher. A mountain... One who the Lord has equipped to pulverize mountains. That's insane! Remember that God's purpose in the, in the midst of your fears, what God intends to do is to make rivers flow where there is no water. To turn deserts into pools, to turn parched ground into springs, to, to plant trees of plenty in the desert, to make a way out of no way, and to produce plenty where there was previously nothing. Why? Because he wants to show, he wants the world to know that he is God and no one else. And so the Lord desires to make you into a mountain thresher to show the world his glory. His presence alongside you is not just to alleviate your fear. No, it's to equip you to show the world what a life of union with Christ can really look like. Brothers and sisters, when you, when you go out into this week, when you're tempted to fear, I want you to remember the truth of our salvation, that, that if you have placed your faith in Christ, you are no longer enslaved to the fear of death. The Lord has promised to be with you, and so you can drive out that fear with love. And I want you to remember, love is not a feeling. It's material investment in your neighbor. And so it's looking at your brother, your sister, your neighbor, your spouse, your friend, or your child, and thinking, look, 
Yes, it's scary for me to seek your good, but I know that the Lord is with me, and I know that the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, has chosen because of my faith in Christ to dwell with me, and I know that the Lord equips me to pour myself out for others even when I know it's hard. This week, I want you to share your fear with someone. I want you to pray for them. I want them to pray for you. And not just, and not one of the, yeah, some, of, some of us have, I mean, like, we, 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 we've got rational fears, we've got irrational fears. I want you to share, I want you to share, I want you to share some of the, some of the rational ones. One of the, one of the ones, one of the ones that keeps you up at night. That. Place it before the Lord and, and place it before your brothers and sisters. Remind yourself and one another that we're to bear one another's burdens. Because a church full of people like that will be able to show the world what godly fearlessness looks like. Because that's the kind of love that our terrified world needs to see. So, this also reminds us that, 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 this, that, this, that this language of mountain threshing is, is, is addressed to the people of Israel. It's addressed to the people people. We're to be a mountain-threshing people. That communal reality is a word of comfort to you who are afraid. And so my encouragement to you all is let's go out and by the power of the mighty God that we serve, be mountain-threshers. Let's go forward.